when you need them in the middle of your week. We all need a reminder of truth. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to do things a little bit differently as we start our Ephesians series. Instead of narrowing in on one particular passage, we're going to really provide a whole overview of the entire book, much like the Bible Project video did. So I won't be going through a verse-by-verse, a longer passage, but we are going to focus on the first couple verses of the book of Ephesians. So if you'd like to, go ahead and turn there, and we'll be there in a minute. Well, let me ask you a question as you turn. When someone needs help in their life, where should they go? Where, what should they do? What should they consult? If someone needs help, needs encouragement, needs to figure out a problem, where should they go? Well, if you ask somebody on the street, they may come up with a number of answers. Google would probably be one of the first ones. Surely you can Google it, find any old answer you need. Or if you're like me, you might need to look up a YouTube video in order to figure out how to do a house project. Some of you are are really skilled in that area and don't need that. I need that even to change a light bulb many times. You know, how do you do this? You've got to look it up on YouTube. It'll tell you everything you need. Or maybe you consult your best friend, Alexa or Siri or, or somebody like that, and you ask them for help with a question. Or, a real current one, maybe you ask ChatGPT. You know what ChatGPT is? Kind of a new thing. Those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, picture asking an online robot all the major questions of life, and it has access to all the information it possibly could. I mean, what could go wrong? It's not like there's any plot in modern movies about robots taking over or whatever, so see no issue there. Uh, I decided to ask ChatGPT about that. I asked the question, uh, when someone needs help in their life, where should they go? And it gave me a whole long list of things. Uh, And it started, number one, with friends and family. I thought that was pretty good. I was kind of surprised by that. Then it went on and said mental health professionals, medical professionals, community and social services, crisis hotlines, educational institutions, and then number seven, religious or spiritual leaders. I'm a bit offended that we're number seven down there, and we're only one space above online communities. Well, thanks a lot for that. Uh, We're below the school and the government. Uh, but lest you think I then used ChatGPT to write this sermon, be assured I did not. There was no way ChatGPT could encapsulate all my weird, nerdy illustrations. Also, it would be called cheating, so I didn't do that. Um, so ChatGPT doesn't have all the answers. It actually says, hey, go seek the answers elsewhere, or maybe the internet can give you some help for practical issues of life. But what about when the issues are deeper and, and more difficult? What if you need help for your marriage? or help to create unity when everybody's disagreeing, or victory over sexual temptation, or help with anger management, or time management, help with your kids, or your boss, or help when your kids think they're your boss. Where should you go? What should you do? What if you need to know what to say, or or what to sing about, or just how to make it through another week? What if you want to grow as a church, and we want to become more relational, and more transparent, and more healthy? Where should we go? Well, in the book of Ephesians, Paul will give an answer to all of these issues of life, and his answer is very, very simple. He says, if you need help with these issues of life, go to the gospel. Go back to the basics of the faith that you believe from the moment you trusted in Christ. Go back to that. Why, Paul? How could it be that simple? Well, it's true because doctrine drives everything you do. What we believe leads to what we live and live out. As the Bible Project video put it, Jesus' story, as we read it in the Gospels, has a lot to do with our story. The Gospel is for everyday life and everyday usage. 
what we know in our heads should and will impact everything we live out, how we walk, how we stand. What we believe will drive what we do. It's a simple, but it's a powerful concept. Now, I'm not saying by this that if you just take the pill of the gospel, all your problems will magically disappear. If you just ground yourself in the gospel, you have a perfect marriage, you have perfect kids, you have a perfect work life, all your problems will go away. But what I'm saying, what Paul is saying, more importantly, is that if you want hope, if you want help for the things of life, you must start with the gospel story. You must gospelize your life, every facet of it. You must let the gospel shape everything you do. So the question for us then is, do we still believe the gospel? Well, of course I do. I still believe the gospel. Well, perhaps a deeper question. Does the gospel still amaze you? Does the gospel still amaze you? Do you still stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love you, a sinner condemned unclean? Does grace still amaze you? In a recent pastoral search committee meeting, Michelle Schultz said something profound. She said, we should be looking for someone who's still amazed that God saved them. That's, that's powerful. That's who I want as pastor of this church. That's what I want for my life. That's what I hope we all want for all our lives, that we are still amazed and in awe that God would save someone like us, sinners as we are. And yet I'm convinced that many of us Christians, myself included, we get complacent with that amazing fact that Jesus loves us, that he came and he died and he rose and the walls of sin and shame are rubble and the giants of death and grave are defeated. What amazing truth in that song. And yet it's kind of ho-hum for us. It's kind of just meh for us. We get bored or tired of it. Now, that's why Christmas and Easter are helpful We have these times of the year where we pause at Christmas to meditate on the fact that that God became a baby for us. And then Easter, man, that he died for all our sins and he rose from the grave and he offers eternal life to all of us who turn to him in faith. Those times of the years are very, very helpful. But what about the time in between Christmas and Easter where we have these long, cold winter days where it's dark and dreary, where we have to put the decorations away, Now, if you have not put the decorations away, I am telling you right now, you can nudge your spouse and tell them it's time to put it away, okay? Christmas is done. Maybe you don't want to, I don't know. But the season's over, Christmas over, and we're back to quote-unquote normal Christian life. What do we do then? How do we remind ourselves of the fresh truths of the gospel in these dark days of winter? If we're not careful, we here at Calvary could very easily lose sight of the gospel, and we can make church all about ourselves, all about our preferences and our opinions and our comforts, and quickly become like the church of Ephesus would become decades after Paul wrote them this letter. Decades after Paul wrote them, reminding them of the gospel, Jesus had to write them a letter personally. Oh, you know you're in trouble when Jesus has to write you a letter personally. Jesus writes seven letters in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, that he delivers through John to the churches, and the very first one is to this very church, decades later, the church of Ephesus. And he commends them. He says, you're doing really well, enduring and and fighting false teachers. You're holding on to the doctrine very, very well, but he rebukes them because they've lost sight of their first love. They got all their doctrine right, They had good leaders. Paul planted the church. Timothy would pastor there for a while. Even John the Apostle would be there for a while. 
They had it all in a row. They had great leadership, good doctrine, and yet they lost sight of their first love. They stopped loving Jesus. They stopped loving the gospel. They stopped being amazed at the fact that Jesus had saved them. Man, that's a scary thought. Could that be us? Could we have everything, our ducks in a row, all the doctrine? We believe it all, but we don't live it. We don't love it. We don't love Jesus. So this morning, as we start this new series in Ephesians, my challenge for you is simply to ask yourself, do you love Jesus? Are you still amazed that he would save you? Are you still in awe at the old, old story that's still so relevant for our lives today? That's what the book of Ephesians will call us to do and to keep doing in our everyday life. So look with me at the first two verses of the book here. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Let's start this book together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take each of those phrases and explain more about this amazing book, about this amazing gospel. First, let's start with the very first word. Who wrote it? Who wrote this letter? Well, there you go. Paul. Well, who's Paul? He says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What does that mean? An apostle by God's will. What means Paul had a very special mission given to him by God. It was all God's will. It was all God's choice. It wasn't Paul's own choice. And his mission was to share Jesus with others. Do you remember the story of Paul? formerly known as Saul. He was hating Christians. He was pursuing them. He was headed towards Damascus to arrest and kill more believers when all of a sudden Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus arrested his life, stopped him in his tracks, did a 180 on his whole life, and he came to know this Savior that he had been persecuting. And he became, with a special mission from God, the apostles, apostle for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And he describes what that means in most of chapter 3 of Ephesians. You can flip over there and kind of scan through the first verses of chapter 3 of Ephesians. And what you'll find, maybe you read this this week, and you'll get a sense that from this portion that Paul is still amazed that he gets to do this job. He's just still in awe that he gets to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He's not gotten complacent with it. Now, I don't know where you're at in your work life. Maybe you're still in that stage where, man, you just love what you do and you're just so excited. Or maybe you're in the stage where you kind of drag yourself to work and you don't feel a lot of motivation. Well, Paul was definitely in the former camp. Man, he was just so excited. Years after he got saved, he's just still amazed that Jesus would come and transform his life. Now, picture yourself at a party where you just don't feel like you belong. Maybe some rich and powerful people invite you to this party. Everything's so fancy. The food's so fancy. And you're like, man, I just feel privileged to get to be here. I don't really deserve to be here. Picture yourself at the Biltmore, at the height of the Vanderbilt's power and wealth, and you're invited to a party there. And everything's fancy. And you're, you're having this lavish dinner and this beautiful house and this beautiful artwork. Would you then sit around and complain about the architecture or complain about the temperature or complain about the food? No. If somebody said, hey, are you, are you feeling comfortable? You'd say, well, who cares if I'm comfortable? I'm just glad to be here. I'm just glad to make it through the door. I don't deserve to be here. That's a sense you get from the Apostle Paul about his mission to preach the mystery of Christ to the Gentiles. 
He says in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Man, he said, I am the most unlikely candidate to be writing this letter, to be on this mission, to have this responsibility. I'm just glad to be here. I don't deserve this at all. In verse 1 of chapter 3 and verse 1 of chapter 4, he describes himself as a prisoner at this time. So we know when he's writing this that he's in prison in Rome for declaring this gospel, for doing this job, and yet he still is just amazed he gets to do it. He's not grumpy about being put in prison for this. No, he describes himself as a prisoner for Christ, as if it's this title of great honor. Man, I'm just glad to be in prison for Jesus. I'm glad to do whatever because Jesus saved me. Everything I experience in life is more than I deserve. It makes sense. If God saves you from an eternity in hell, then you feel like you owe him your whole life. Anything outside of hell is more than we deserve. Those who've been saved from eternal misery have no reason to complain about minor earthly misery. This is a man, Paul, who believed what he wrote. He believed the gospel. He lived the gospel. And he's so in love with the gospel that you get the sense in chapter 1 that he just can't stop himself from writing about it. In fact, those of you who are editors or English teachers, you might cringe a little bit at the Apostle Paul's grammar in chapter 1. You don't see it in all your English versions, but in the Greek, it's really a large chunk of that chapter is just one run-on sentence. I mean, he just can't stop describing the gospel. In fact, one of my professors diagrammed in Greek that entire long sentence in chapter 1. I mean, talk about a hard task. But here it is, for those of you who are just experts in both diagramming and Greek, maybe two of the the hardest subjects for you to even think about, uh, thinking back to English class and shuddering, but here it is. There's chapter 1, 3 through 14. Oh, wait, there's a little bit more of that. Actually, there's a little bit more of that. And actually, there's still a little bit more of that. Paul just can't stop talking about how wonderful the gospel is, and all the blessings he's experienced and these believers get to experience because of the gospel. Paul is a man who was still amazed that God would save someone like him. That's what I want to be like. I hope that's what you want to be like. That's who wrote this book. But now let's look at the second question, flipping back to chapter one. Let's ask the next question, to whom was this book written? So we talk about Paul, the author. Now who was the audience here? It goes on in chapter 1 to say, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So this was a church in the city of Ephesus. And I'm really excited about this because I've had the privilege of actually going to Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. So what I'm going to do for you right now is take you on a very quick digital tour through slides, maybe a three-hour tour or so, I don't know, and we're going to tour the city of Ephesus. I like being a tour guide. Uh, I, I have been nearly arrested in the Hagia Sophia for being a bogus tour guide. You can ask Jeremy about that story sometime. Uh, but I do enjoy giving a tour, so bear with me. Here we go. First of all, take a look at a map. Ephesus was in the province. You can kind of think of it like a state of Asia. That's not the whole continent of Asia. This is the Roman province of Asia. And it was kind of like the state capital of that region. And thus, it was a very large city. You can get a sense of it. And this is just a little bit that's been uncovered. Archaeology is still ongoing there. If you feel called to be the next Indiana Jones, you could go there and uncover some more there. Always exciting things going on. 
Um, it is a very large city. Here's a picture I took just looking up. You can see it's quite mountainous actually there. That's one of the streets of the city that Paul perhaps walked down. These believers walked down. Pretty cool to think about that. The population was around 250,000 people. That's, that's rather large, especially for this time. That's the populations of just the cities of Charleston, Greenville, and Spartanburg combined, around that number. Uh, that's a pretty large city. And it was a very Roman city, very Roman. Rome was in charge, and they gloated in it. Uh, they would later build, in the bottom right there, a temple for worshiping the emperor uh, later on after this letter was written. And you can see in the bottom left a, a kind of sculpture there of a Roman soldier's armor. And that should be interesting because that's what Paul uses as an illustration in chapter 6 for the Christian life. And perhaps the Ephesians believers walked past that and, and were very, very certainly familiar by seeing the soldiers all around the city of what that would have been like. So Rome was very firmly in charge, but also was a very pagan city, a city full of temples to various gods, various false gods, Greek and Roman gods and others. And thus it was full of sin. In the bottom right, you could see a sculpture of Nike, not the shoe Nike, mind you, the Greek goddess of victory, Nike. And that's fitting because the Romans thought they had had victory. I thought they ruled all the known world. But Paul will set the record straight, and he'll write to the Ephesian believers that no, they do not have the victory. They do not have Nike. Instead, Jesus has victory. Jesus is the God of victory. And in chapter 1, 20 and 21, Paul writes that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus had the true victory in his resurrection. And so they could trust him and rely on him, even though they walked past daily all these temples full of immorality, full of sin, full of power, no doubt made them nervous, but they could rest in Christ, who was victorious. A good illustration of this is the temple of Diana. Uh, Diana, uh, in Acts 19, Paul's planting this church, and he runs into trouble with the idol makers who build idols for Diana or Artemis. Um, and and they're, they're getting upset because people are getting saved, people are burning their magic books. And Demetrius, one of them, uh, raises a riot against Paul and the believers, and he says, listen, if this keeps going on, our great goddess Diana is not going to be worshipped anymore. She's not going to have prestige anymore. She's not going to have glory. And so they start riling the people up, and they all storm into the theater. You can see here the very theater um, that they would have gathered in this riot, and they were chanting for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana. They chanted over and over. Now, Paul, being the Paul he was, he wanted to go into that theater and, and, and set the record straight and declare the gospel to them because he just so in love with the gospel. That made him bold. There's a very doorway into the theater. And every time I see that, I think about, man, do I have that boldness? I mean, Paul was rip-roaring, ready to go into this riot to declare the gospel. But the believers, probably smarter, stopped Paul from going in there and, and probably saved his life. But they were chanting, they were rioting, the government eventually quieted them down, uh, but they were real nervous about their goddess, Diana, not having the worship she deserved. And you can see an artist's rendering of what the temple of Diana may have looked like. I mean, look at all the glory. Think about the Ephesians believers walking past this temple and then gathering in small little churches inside homes with just a few people compared to the glory and magnificence of this temple with all its priests and all its immorality and all the idols being sold there. 
But though they chanted, great is Diana of the Ephesians, this is what the Temple of Diana looks like today. A swamp. They had to stack those stones up. I mean, there's barely anything left. So much for great is Diana. Her statues are sold to tourists for trinkets nowadays. Nobody worships Diana anymore. She lost. Demetrius says right. She lost all her prestige and all her influence, and barely anyone remembers her anymore. But King Jesus, that's a different story. He is still worshipped in our midst this morning, and even in that country, the country of Turkey, predominantly Muslim, it is still believers are gathering today, this morning, to worship King Jesus. Empires have risen and fallen in this region. So many different rulers have ruled over this. Temples have been built and been destroyed, and yet Christ and we, his church, continue on, undaunted. The gospel, truth of old, shall not kneel and shall not faint. The gospel continues on. The gospel is powerful. And hopefully that gives you a picture of the pressure these believers were under, and yet Paul's call for them to stay firm. Finally, it was a place of great business and commerce. You can see the marketplace there on the left. On the right, you can see some homes that have been excavated, maybe even homes of some of these believers. So I want you to think about these believers as just, just normal people. This is a place not much different from our own. It's a busy place, a bustling place, a dark place that needed the gospel, that needed the light. And Paul had planted a church there and now is writing to that church to encourage them as he sits in a prison in Rome. And what he says to them He describes who they are in verse 1, and he says, they are what? Look back at verse 1. They are saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. He's describing their identity. He's describing our identity. He wants to know right off the bat who they are. He's described who he is. Here's who you are. You are saints. You are set apart. You are in Ephesus, he says, this dark city, but you're set apart from the rest of Ephesus. You are sanctified. You are in a class of your own because of what Jesus has done for you. You are saints, just as we are saints in Greenville. We're in Greenville County, but not of Greenville County. Then he says they are faithful. This doesn't mean they are perfect, or otherwise, why would he need to write them a letter? But they're believing in Jesus. They are growing in their faith of Jesus. Day after day, they keep believing in Jesus. They are faithful. In verse 15, he says, man, I've heard about your faith in Jesus and your love for all the saints. He has great respect for this church. He has great love for them. And he says, man, you are being faithful in Christ Jesus. And that's true of us too. You, Calvary Baptist Church, are faithful in Christ Jesus. I see you serving the Lord. I see you loving the saints. I see you encouraging one another. Man, I got so many questions this week just about how my own child was doing because some of you heard she was sick. You are a caring church. You're a loving church. Every time this past year, I was just feeling so discouraged. I would come in on Sunday morning and hearing you sing, hearing the word proclaimed, having conversations with you all, man, I would leave joyful and excited about what God is doing. You are faithful in Christ. Keep it up. Be encouraged. I love you, Calvary Baptist Church. God is doing great things here. But notice he says they are faithful in Christ. And I think those two words are really the key of all of this, the key of all their identity, the key of our identity. In fact, one person said that you could really sum up all of Christians with this simple phrase, in Christ. That's who we are. Fundamentally, we are in Christ. This is called the doctrine of the union with Christ. It's very, very rich and encouraging. 
He says they're physically in Ephesus, this big bustling city, and yet spiritually, in a deeper reality, they were really in Christ. And later on in chapter 2, verse 6, he says you're actually in the heavens with Christ, where he's seated at his Father's right hand. We are so united with Christ that we can no more be kicked out of this gospel than if Christ himself could be kicked out of heaven. And we know that would never happen, as one author puts it. We are secure. We are in Christ. And that is our identity, and that's the identity of these believers. Now, that brings us to our final question this morning, and that's this. What is this letter about? We saw who wrote it. We saw who it was written to. But what is it about? I think verse 2, looking back, chapter 1, verse 2, really summarizes the message. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. I love this verse. You'll see Paul start many of his letters with something like this. Sometimes he adds in mercy, but oftentimes he'll start his letters with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this so much that actually the name of our daughter, Charis Irene, comes from this very greeting. Charis is a Greek word for grace. Irene is derived from the Greek word for peace. That is who Paul is. Now you're like, now what's the big deal? Why couldn't Paul just say, howdy, hi, what's up? How are you doing, Church of Ephesus? Well, Paul, for Paul, the gospel is so good that it even affects how we greet one another. And a simple hi can't suffice. Man, grace to you and peace, he says. Now, this is very interesting because the customary way to start a letter in Greek was to say kairain, greetings, or rejoice. But Paul changes that to charis, grace. And the traditional Jewish greeting even today is shalom. And so Paul uses a Greek word for peace or shalom, erene. And he says, grace and peace are yours. He's combining the Greek greeting and the Jewish greeting because the church is both. And he'll describe a lot of that in this letter. The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, but they're all one in Christ. And unlike anyone else, it can truly be said about us that we have received grace and peace. Grace, not the law anymore. True peace that Christ has brought and is only found in him. Grace and peace marks our lives because of the gospel. And I think those two words really summarize Paul's whole message in this book and really the whole gospel. Let's lay out an outline of the book here. He'll flesh out what grace looks like in the rest of chapter 1 into chapter 2, and he'll list all these blessings in that long run-on sentence that we have received in Christ and in the gospel. And he says it's all to the praise of his glorious grace, verse 6. Then in the first half of uh, chapter 2, he's going to flesh out that grace by talking about where we were. We were dead in our sins, but by grace we have been saved. It is not of our own works, lest anyone should boast. It's all by grace. Then he fleshes out what peace looks like in the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3. He says, in Christ and only in Christ can true peace be achieved. Peace between us and God. The Father's wrath is completely satisfied. We're at peace. We're reconciled. We have a relationship with him. He is our Father. But also peace among ourselves as a body of Christ. And he spends a lot of time on that, talking about this dividing wall between Jew and Gentiles being broken down. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For he, Jesus himself, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In chapter 3, as I already described, he goes on to describe his role in explaining this peace to both Jews and Gentiles and how privileged he is to do that and how mysterious it is, but glorious. Then in chapter 4, he makes a big transition to apply this now to our lives. What does this peace mean for our everyday life? And he starts by saying it looks like unity 
in the first 16 verses of chapter 4. Why is unity such a big deal? Well, Paul can't get very far into his practical section before he has to flash back to doctrine, flash back to the gospel, because it's just such a basis of our lives. And he says, you need to be united and humble and meek and kind to one another because there's one Father, there's one Lord Jesus, there's one Spirit, there's one God. And thus, there is one body of Christ, not many, not several. So you must be united. And to divide yourselves into little factions based on preferences or opinions or arguments, man, that's to compromise the gospel itself because the gospel has made us all one body. And this unity should lead to us using our unique gifts because we are all very different. We all have different gifts, he says, but we should use those differences of personality and gifting to build up the body and to create more growth in the church. Then the rest of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, he applies grace to our daily lives and says that the gospel gets down to work in our lives to motivate us to put off sin of all types and to put on gracious actions, to put on showing grace, especially toward others. So for instance, in chapter 4, 29, he says, hey, we, we are to put aside all corrupting, discouraging talk And instead, we're to speak words for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We received grace unmerited from God, and so, man, we want to share that with others, with our words. Even to those who are undeserving, we offer forgiveness, he says at the end of chapter 4. Why, Paul? Well, he goes back to the gospel once again for motivation. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiven you forgive others. Then beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You are children of your Father, so act like Him and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. And then in the rest of chapter 5, he says this even includes sexual purity. And he'll spend a large portion of chapter 5 on that. Grace compels us to expose the darkness in our own hearts and even the darkness in other people's hearts and be transparent about our failings and seek to shine light on it. To not participate in these evil, dark actions that, as you can see from all those temples, were going on in that city and certainly are going on today. We put that off because that shouldn't even be named among us as is becoming for saints, says Paul. We're set apart ones. That is our identity given to us in the gospel, so we should live like it and shine light. And we should be wise in our daily living. We should make good use of our time, he'll say. And then finally, he says we should sing, which is just, you know, takes kind of a left turn. Why does he say singing? What's the big deal about singing? All these other things I understand are big deals in life, but singing? Yes, one worship leader says the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. If you truly believe the amazing truths of the gospel, man, you are going to want to sing about it. You're going to sing with joy. Even if you may not like the song, as long as it's full of truth, man, you're going to want to sing it out because the gospel is just so good. It leads to singing. Then the rest of chapter 5 into chapter 6, he applies grace and peace to our relationships. Man, it gets very practical. This is what grace and peace look like in marriage. You've been shown grace and peace, so you show it to your spouse. This is what it looks like in parenting. This is what it looks like in the workplace. Because God has made peace with you, you try to make peace with everyone so much as it depends on you. And then finally, he ends the book with a call to stand for this grace and peace. Stand in the gospel because there is an evil one. There's evil forces out there who do not want the gospel to spread and to prevail. And so we must not back down an inch from the truth of the gospel 
And instead, we should wear the armor of God. We should wear shoes that signify the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We make war for peace in people's lives through the gospel. And it is a war, and we must be on our guard. And then he brings it to a conclusion at the very end of chapter 6, and he can't help himself. He has to circle back to grace and peace once more in verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Grace and peace all throughout the book. And I hope you're able to see that as you work through it and find a fresh glimpse of that grace and peace in the gospel. Maybe a simpler summary for you of this book, to wrap your head around it, is in three words. I found this in various sources. It's not original with me. But first, you have to know certain things. You have to know the gospel. Some would even say you, you, you sit here. You dwell on these things. This is your foundation using the imagery of a temple. The only command he gives in the first three chapters is to remember. That's it. Just remember the gospel. Dwell on it. But then in 4 and 5, he transitions and he says, walk this out. Live out this gospel. Verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore, walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Walk it out. Apply it to daily life. And then finally in chapter 6, stand for this. Stand firm on the gospel. Know, walk, and stand. Now, a few things to look for as we go through this book, and maybe as you have time to read through the whole thing this week. I want you to look in the first three chapters particularly for every instance of in Christ or in him, or through him. Man, you're going to find it a lot. What is true about you because you're in Christ? You're going to find all sorts of terms of our identity. Man, riches. He's going to talk about the riches we have in Christ. The fullness. Man, do you need fulfillment? Jesus brings that ultimately for us in Christ, and and the heavenly blessings we have. And then in the second half of the book, I want you to look for the circling back to the gospel that Paul does when he gives these commands. He's going to use words like therefore or for, Because of this truth of the gospel, therefore you do this. Or you do this, for he did this for you. And trace those things and see how they all connect so well. Well, as we wrap up, I hope you've seen in this just short overview that Ephesians is going to be very relevant for our lives, very helpful, I believe. However long it takes us to get through it, I think the Lord has this for us. I'm praying that this series would be interrupted by us having a new pastor, and I hope you're praying with me to that end. Uh, But however long it takes, we're going to find many rich blessings here in this book. And so I want to challenge you as we start to gospelize your life, to live your life in Christ alone, to let doctrine drive what you do. And if you get nothing else, I hope you get this year a fresh glimpse of Jesus and the wonders of the gospel. I hope you fall in love with him again and rekindle that first love if it's grown cold. To drink in every way you are in Christ alone, united with him. What's true of him is true of you. And I pray that you would help us build here what the author Ray Ortland describes as a gospel culture. This is a profound thought that I've been meditating on recently. Ortland describes different ways churches can operate And he says some churches have their gospel doctrine right, but it's minus gospel culture. They don't apply it to their relationships. And that leads to hypocrisy. Man, it's not a warm and welcoming place. They believe all the right things, but they don't live like it's true. And certainly we've seen that on many churches in the past decades. They compromise on gospel culture in spite of having everything doctrinally right, 
And that leads to all sorts of sin and problems and abuse and hypocrisy and legalism and racism. All sorts of relational brokenness happens when churches compromise on the gospel culture. Believing the right things but not living like it. Let it not be us. Let it not be Calvary. But if we're not careful, we can go to the opposite extreme where man, as we see many do today, many younger people embrace the gospel culture of welcome, but they don't have any gospel doctrine. They compromise on the truth. That is fragility, he says, or or you could say hypocrisy or heresy. There's no power if we compromise what's clear in Scripture. And another church in Revelation is addressed. Ephesus, we saw, had no love but had their doctrine right. Thyatira had the love, but they didn't have their doctrine right. They embraced false teaching. We should not go to either option. Instead, we should seek to embrace them both, to embrace both Ephesians 1 through 3, the gospel, and 4 through 6, the gospel culture, to apply the gospel to our lives. And if we have both of those things, we have power. That is a beautiful vision for a healthy gospel-centered church. That is true revival where the Spirit is working in amazing ways. That is a place where sinners are welcome, a place for sinners. Because we realize, according to the gospel, the gospel is true. We're all sinners. We're all broken. And so we can be honest about it. We can be transparent. We can be truthful. Because we're all on even footing in the gospel. We're, we were all dead in our sins, and we've all been sinners saved by grace that can stand amazed in Jesus' presence. But more than that, it's also a place to grow. We're not content to just stay there in our sin. Because the gospel saved us for good works. And so we seek every day to put off what is evil and put on true holiness. A place that's everyone pursuing holiness together and growing in that. And ultimately a place to belong. In spite of our differences and generation or our preferences or our opinions, man, this is a place where we all belong because we all belong to Jesus. He saved us, bought us. We are his children And therefore, we belong together. Despite whatever we look like or whatever we think like, we are God's family. We are Christ's body. Man, this sounds like a place that we'd be excited to come to every Sunday. Not a place we dread to come or feel like we have to put on our best Instagrammable self in order to go to. No, a beautiful, messy place of grace. And only the Spirit could produce such a church. And we should be praying and asking Him, to do such. Ortland and his co-author Sam Alberry described these two different cultures, a culture of self-justification and a gospel culture. Self-justification, they say, creates an outlook of aloofness, superiority, negative scrutiny, and gotcha. But the gospel culture, if we truly believe it, embraces what Paul says in Romans 15, 7. We welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Instead of a blame-shifting heart, a culture of ugliness, where we project onto others our guilty anxiety and we look for someone to judge, instead, we have this beautiful culture of acceptance, warmth, beauty, safety. And the more clearly that doctrine is taught, the more beautifully the culture is nurtured, the more powerfully a church will bear prophetic witness to Jesus as the mighty friend of sinners. That sounds amazing. That's what we all want. A beautiful culture of gospel, the gospel doctrine being applied to our lives. But man, 
How do I do that, Matt? How do I apply this to my life? How do I become more gospel-centered? How do we increase the gospel culture of this church? Well, here's a few things to think about this week. First of all, you have to stare at it. You have to stare at the gospel. You have to meditate on it. You have to turn your eyes to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for you. Most practically, this looks like reading the gospel and meditating on it as described in Scripture. In your own personal time, but maybe the best place to study that is with God's people on Sunday mornings and in other settings. You're just drenching yourself in the gospel. You're staring at it until it changes you and motivates you. It also looks like prayer. You'll notice that I skipped over some sections in Ephesians in my outline, and that's our, those are the prayers of the book. There's lots of prayer in this book. At the end of chapter 1, he prays for them to have insight into this gospel. At the end of chapter 3, Pastor Robert Lord Willing will talk about this passage next week. He'll pray for them to have power to see God's love and how deep it is. And then he'll end the book in some of his last comments asking for them to pray for him to have boldness in his witness. Paul evidently thought prayer works. And prayer is one of the key ways to recenter ourselves and rehearse the gospel to ourselves as we praise God for all he has done. And notice he's praying for spiritual things over physical things. Not that we can't pray for physical things, but man, we should be praying these prayers of Paul for ourselves, for our families, for our church to truly see the gospel and have power to know how loved we are. If you want to grow in the gospel, you must ask God for help. Now, you might notice stare and prayer, that kind of sounds like the spiritual disciplines. All right, shameless plug for Chase and I's Sunday evening class tonight. Come join us if you want to have some fresh insight, not that we know everything, but maybe just some fresh ideas about how you can grow in your time in the Word and time in prayer. But then finally, how to grow in the gospel? Well, care and share for others, because the gospel is too great to just be you and Jesus. The gospel, my friends, is a group project. Now, we don't like group projects. If you're like me in school, man, I have to work with other people and rely on them to get a good grade? That's not fun. But the gospel is a group project. This letter tells us that the gospel is not just for us personally, not just to change our lives as much as it has, but it's for a body of believers to live out together. So commit to the church this year. Commit to invest in others. Commit to be around people as much as possible this year in the various programs of our church and even beyond our programs to invite people into your home to pursue those who are lonely and hurting. The gospel will become more real the more real you are and open with others. So open your life up to care for others and to be cared for as a body of believers and to share it with the watching world who so desperately needs to see a church of love and warmth and true holiness. Now, maybe this seems too simple to you, but the gospel is simple. And this is good news because we're simple people. It doesn't take rocket science to figure this out. It just takes the word and prayer and others. We can all do this. And I believe as we gospelize our lives that 2024 will be a great year. Not because I can guarantee you won't have problems. In fact, I can almost guarantee you will have problems and trials and difficulties. But no, 2024 will be a great year for us because the gospel is still great and it still works and it's still true and it's still powerful. And Jesus is still the answer as much here in 2024 as he was in 2023, as he was in 1994, as he was back in 8062 when this book of Ephesians was written. And as the song the Infante sang last week says, 
I don't know what you're doing, and that's true, we don't know what God is doing or what he will do, but I know what you've done. We know the gospel, what he has done for us, what is true, and so we can move forward with confidence. Even if you feel like this year your life is ruined beyond hope, it's broken, you're just a pile of Legos. It's just chaos. It's just brokenness. But hear the promise of Ephesians 1.10. His purpose, God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Friends, everything will be put back together. Everything sad will come untrue. And your life may be ruined, but it's in those ruins where God loves to work, to reconstruct, to rebuild, to restore, to make things new, both ultimately one day. That's our hope. That's the reason why we don't have despair, but even in the here and now. Because Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship. We are his work of art. We are his poem. He is still working on us, and he never gives up on us, and he will not this year. So you may feel like your life is in shambles and and you can't go forward. How do I get hope? Go back to the gospel. And that's our hope this year. Because the only true rubble and hopelessness in your life are those walls of sin and shame that Jesus came and died and rose to make rubble. Sin and shame defeated. Giants of death and grave defeated. This is our God. Let's get a fresh view of him this year and choose to praise him for the gospel And hold on this year that my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. May that be our prayer this year. Let's pray right now. Oh God, we look to you. We have nowhere else to turn. All else is chaos. We live in a dark world, much like Ephesus. And yet you're here as well, in this era, in this generation, working and the gospel is still true. Oh, we praise you for that. We praise you for the victory that is guaranteed to us because you rose your son from the dead. Oh, Lord, we praise you. Help us to remember this this week, this month, this year. Give us fresh eyes to see the amazingness of the gospel open our eyes to new insights, things we've never even considered about how incredible your gospel is and your son is. Oh, may Christ be all in our lives this year, and may we decrease, may we be nothing. May we fade away, and may the worries and cares of life that so distract us fade in the light of the glorious gospel of grace and peace. May you be exalted in our church, in our midst, in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name.